0: tony and josh from ggch of course trip fuller and Homebrewed christianity and a whole grip of others and you can use the promo code return of yhp all one word for 25 dollars off your ticket prices go up starting june 1st that link will be in the notes i hope to see a bunch of you guys there in october it was a serious highlight of last year for me Before getting into today's episode, I wanted to share something I found interesting from the You Have Permission Facebook group. This is from Evan, responding to last week's episode about evangelicalism's racial blind spot. He starts by quoting something that either Michael or I said, I don't remember who said it. Quote, White evangelicals do express a true desire to end racial division and inequality, and they act according to those desires. But when they do act that way, they end up making the situation worse, end quote. And here's what Evan had to say about that. That is some serious truth right there. My wife and I did foster care and went into the process as colorblind as you can be. We ended up being placed with two black boys and thankfully we quickly learned that we had stepped into a social and cultural divide we really knew nothing about. But still, in our ignorance, we fell back on that insufficient white toolbox like we somehow could fix the problem with such limited tools. Thankfully, there are some fantastic Facebook groups run by adult transracial adoptees and other people of color that are willing to put up with white people nonsense for the sake of people like me. It's interesting to watch because clearly other foster or adoptive parents in the same situation truly do desire to see racial equality as they now all of a sudden have a personal stake in it. But the amount of effort it takes to break down the notion that my white Christian solutions are the answer is sadly ridiculous. I visited a small white church that I have some friends at this last Sunday. For the last five years or so, they have been truly desiring to become more multicultural. And I feel like their leadership has a slightly better understanding than most white Christians of systemic racial issues. But they've made little to no practical progress. They're going verse by verse through the book of Exodus with the purpose to try and relate to the struggle of black people, I guess. Eye roll emoji. And it was the whitest message I've ever heard. It somehow turned into a message about sovereignty, inerrancy, praise for the couple adoptive parents in the room, and too many Tim Keller references. Again, very well-intentioned, but not solving anything because they still have the wrong toolbox. Thanks, Evan, for sharing that on the group page. Um, The Facebook group is limited to those who are part of the Patreon, and there's a link to that in the show notes. If you're a patron already and haven't joined the group, join us. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, to today's topic. This episode was very hard to title. I ended up with the overly simple, You Have Permission to Believe in a God Who Suffers. But here are some other titles I tried out. You have permission to take 500 million years of animal suffering seriously. Maybe a little too long and a little too brutal. Uh, to believe God suffers alongside evolving creation. Kind of a mouthful, but technically more accurate for what we're going to talk about. But maybe it's better to just describe what we're going to hear. Um, Bethany Soleretter is putting forth a theory, an understanding of God suffering animals, evolution, and love, and her theory is informed by process theology and open and relational theism. Process theology, as I understand it, is an alternative to classical theism, which states, among other things, that God is outside of time, immutable, meaning God does not change at all, and impassable, meaning God is never affected by the world. The process theologian responds, no, God is indeed in time, in some meaningful way, because God interacts with creation in time. Further, God is fundamentally love, as is shown in Jesus, and therefore part of God's essence is that God is affected by what we do, since someone who loves is always willing to be affected by the other whom they love. And God is not actually immutable. God changes as we change because our actions affect God in some way. Now, there's more to it than what I just said, and also there's a lot of overlap between what I'm describing as process theology and open and relational theology, which doesn't necessarily need to be of the process variety that we could get real nerdy, but, you know, you can look into that more if you want. But hopefully that gives you sort of some idea of where Bethany is coming from. She works out her process theology-influenced theory by focusing on one particular part of of the problem of evil, animal suffering that is not caused by humans. So we might talk about animal cruelty, that's a really good question, difficult question, but that's not what we're dealing with today. If the evolutionary picture is true and there's every reason to believe that it is, animals have been living and dying for hundreds of millions of years, long before any human sin entered the world. But in Bethany's mind, Those animals have not suffered and died alone. God suffers with them at all times. Now, Bethany will be the first to say that her way of thinking about this stuff is not the only way to think about it. She might not be right. Process theology might be totally wrong. Evolution, probably that one is correct, at least biologically speaking, but there are any number of ways of conceiving of a loving God given the brute physical facts of the universe we find ourselves in. Some of us don't really need a bunch of complicated theological concepts to help us pray and worship God. If that's you, you might skip this episode, quite honestly. It gets pretty involved and pretty nerdy, but I think beautiful because some of us do need pretty complicated theological concepts, and I'm one of those people. As a result, of course, I loved this conversation because I am the kind of person who needs a pretty high level of theological nuance and internal consistency in order to live out my life of Christian faith. Oftentimes I wish I didn't, but if I didn't, then this podcast would not exist. Bethany says at one point that theology is a model-making endeavor, and that strikes me as correct. So here is one model that I find incredibly interesting. There's one term that I'm not sure we defined as we talked, and that term is eschatological hope. This is the basic Christian idea that God will make things right in the end, one way or another. Eschatology is the study of the end and or the study of God's new creation, new heavens and new earth type stuff. Okay, that's a long enough introduction. Here is my chat with Bethany. Can you give us a brief background of your own faith story? Sure.
1: Yeah, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. So my dad is Buddhist, in, not, not in a religious sense, but in a philosophical sense. We never went to church as a family. And I came to love Jesus because I love horses. So... (laughs) There's
2: a story in there somewhere. Yeah.
1: So I loved horses and always wanted to ride. And so my parents would send me to these summer camps that were Christian evangelical outreach camps for kids like me who Mm. would have no other way to hear the gospel. When I was 15, I worked at one of them. And so then I had sort of two and a half months of being immersed in sort of Christian culture. And that was really when I sort of think of, of my becoming a Christian.
0: Now, you are uh, a theologian and an academic, and one of the hallmarks of evangelicalism, unfortunately, is a kind of a pretty pervasive anti-intellectualism, not in all of evangelicalism, but a lot, especially in American evangelicalism. And yet you, we were just chatting before we started rolling here, and and you do consider yourself an evangelical still. And so I thought I'd like you to just talk about that for a couple minutes.
1: Yeah, I do know the prevalence of that attitude, but I've also found something else where I've I've met evangelicals. I went to Regent College in Vancouver for Mm -hmm. my master's, and that was a really robust, rigorous evangelical education. So there is hope. If you want me to be a part of your culture wars, then I'm not.
0: Not everybody in the world is interested in the confluence or antipathy between science and religion, but you are, and I am. How did that happen for you?
1: Totally by accident really. I was enrolled in a history program for my master's. I wasn't doing anybody any harm. And one day, my father came home with a business card from a guy named Dennis Lamoureux, who was the chair of science and religion at the University of Alberta. And he had gone to Regent and he just thought it'd be a nice pastoral thing to meet up with Bethany and see if she knows, you know, what it will be like going there. And so we talked a couple of times And then he said, you know what, I've got a book coming out. I wonder if you would read it and be sort of a pre-editor on it. And I thought, Mm. you know, this is a guy with three doctorates, you know, couldn't do one, couldn't do two, did three, one in... (laughs) (laughs) One in dentistry, one in evolutionary biology, and one in theology. So, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm almost finished my bachelor's. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be the editor. Sure,
0: I'll edit your uh, scholarly tome. Yeah, Yeah. totally.
1: So that was why I said yes. Whereas when it came to science and religion, I'm like, I don't know. It's two scientists yelling at each other, and I don't know who's right. I'm not a scientist. You know, as long as God created, I don't really care how. Mm -hmm. But what his book did, it's called Evolutionary Creation, was show how bringing the questions about science to the table challenged my readings of Genesis, challenged my readings of Scripture, and opened them up. And so what brought me into science and religion was not actually the science, but how we read the Bible. And yeah. I just thought it was revelatory. I loved it.
0: How about animal suffering? That seems like kind of—I mean, you liked horses, we know that. Yeah, loved horses. Uh, but animal suffering is a is maybe an odd— Choice. Well,
1: yeah. So this, again, was kind of by accident because my real questions were around human suffering. So Mm -hmm. I had been at this church for a long time and it turned out that the new charismatic senior pastor that we had was actually really abusive, Mm. not sexually abusive, but power manipulating, really divisive. And yet he was there speaking in God's name and that sort of thing. And I remember being so angry and so upset. Like, God, why don't you do anything about this? Why don't you kick this guy out? Give him a heart attack, like something. Yeah, yeah. How come you're just sitting on your hands? And so that raised the theodicy questions for me. You know, if God is good and God is powerful, why do we have evil? That shouldn't work. So, that same professor, Dennis, invited me to come do science and religion. He said, You know, I'll mentor you, we'll take you through. And Mm -hmm. I just thought, Okay, I'll do that. And then I thought, How can I combine my interest with these questions about evil with the evolution thing? And I said, Has anybody done evolution and suffering and God creating a world through suffering, not this sort of sufferingless world of, of paradise? And he said, Wide open field. Uh, so I started doing that, and, like, the next year, three books came out on it, yeah. and that's another story.
0: But uh, but what you mean there is we do hear a lot about the kind of suffering that human beings inflict on each other, and we we talk, you know, PETA and other groups talk about animal cruelty, the kind of suffering that humans inflict on animals. But you're talking about a different kind of suffering. You're talking about just pure, natural animal suffering and also the fact that it seems, through biological evolution, that it's basically competition and suffering and death and slight improvements. That's the whole way the sausage is made. Yeah. Uh, and so so that's our subject. Yeah. yeah.
1: So humans are obviously causing a lot of damage in the world. They're causing a lot of deforestation, loss of habitat, change of climate. But humans have only been around behaviorally for 50,000 years Uh, even anatomically 200,000, but life has a 3 billion year history. Mm -hmm. So there has been a lot of suffering long before humans were around to do any of it. So even things like dinosaurs had bone cancer, Mm. you know, that's, that's not a new thing to have cancer. Parasites have been around for ages. Predators came just after, you know, in the, in the sort of Cambrian explosion 350 million years ago. So we we have a long history of creatures eating one another. You have to be careful because you can overemphasize that it's all competition, that it's all, right. you know, violence. And that's, that's not true either. So people like Sarah Coakley and Martin Novak have done a lot of work on cooperation and symbiosis and the place of altruism. And that's all true. But it's not problematic, right? Like, great. So yeah. I, I tend to focus on on the bits of the evolutionary process that really are problematic.
0: Yeah. So if, if we think it's reasonable that people work on the problem of evil in a human context, it's reasonable to work on the problem of evil in an animal context.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But they're different. Right. So theologically, the two strongest Christian answers for why humans suffer is you have the free will thing. God's given us moral free will, and we use that in bad ways. And then you have this sort of, what John Hick calls, the the veil of soul making. So this idea that when we encounter suffering, it can be an opportunity for us to grow closer to God, Mm -hmm. to to be transformed and developed by it. Now, so far as we know, animals don't have that option or... The, the moral free will. So the two most powerful Christian explanations for evil work. just don't apply.
0: Yeah. Are there any examples of animal suffering? You mentioned bone cancer and dinosaurs. And you know we think about predation. But are there any other examples that maybe we aren't even thinking about that kind of bring it into even sharper focus, more egregious examples?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, there's a lot. Um, I mean, I'm sure
0: there's but <laughs> infinite, but what look are up, a few? Look up
1: cordyceps at some point. Uh, I mean, it, it's hard to say because different different creatures suffer in different ways and probably to right. different extents. So I right. can tell you all about the parasitic wasp that so bothered Darwin, the ichneumon wasp mm. that lays its eggs on caterpillars, and when they hatch they then burrow into the living caterpillar and eat their way out. So it was part of the inspiration for that alien in the movie Aliens, you know, like the face planter one. So that wasn't actually something alien at all. That was drawn from nature. But caterpillars don't have a lot of ability to suffer. But so Jay McDaniel, for example, brings up the example of white pelicans, and they every reproductive cycle they lay two eggs but their strategy is only to raise one chick so 90% of the time the older chick hatches first and when its younger sibling hatches the older one pushes it out of its nest or the parents just start ignoring it stop feeding it and and so this poor little second chick just has a very short life of complete neglect, even in its primary relationship, and then dies of exposure or starvation or, or a passing predator. And, that, and that's a tough one. And, you know, but 10% of the time something happens, the older chick and the younger chick is raised in its place. So it's, so that's
0: the evolutionary purpose of having the two yeah, eggs. Yeah,
1: it's, it's an insurance Ugh. policy, but it's pretty hard on the individual
0: so that brings to mind what's called the evidentiary problem of evil, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But for listeners, so there are, there are sort of two ways of framing the problem of evil, broadly speaking. The first one is called the logical problem of evil. And that problem says it's logically impossible for God to be good and there to be any suffering. And most people don't buy that argument anymore. And if you want to nerd out, you can look up how Alvin Plantinga more or less solved that, I think, back in the 70s. But the stronger argument in the problem of evil is the evidentiary or the probabilistic argument of all these types of suffering that we can see. There surely must be one, that all things being equal, it would be better that that suffering didn't happen, and therefore God is on the hook for that. So a good God should only make a world where all suffering is redemptive and Or make sense or something. And so this white pelican example, if 90% of second egg white pelicans' lives are essentially not worth living, as far as we can tell, you know, it's nice to be born and all, but they basically are born, they suffer continuously, and they die a violent death. So this would seem to be maybe an example of this kind of egregious evil, this kind of truly unnecessary, like the world could be fine without white pelicans. I mean, it's great that it's great that the second egg helps them evolutionarily, but like, why not just have no white pelicans? Would would be sort of the the thrust of that argument. I mean, do you agree that that's a I, it's getting in that world?
1: I yeah, I think I think it could be used by that. I mean, I think William Rowe's famous example is a deer caught in a forest fire, or a fawn a mm, fawn caught in a forest yeah. fire that that's very badly burnt but doesn't die for a few days. You know, right? Just gratuitous suffering. What I don't get about that argument is the idea that this existence lowers the probability of God.
0: Mm, That
1: kind of an argument, I just don't understand because I don't believe in God because I think God is probable. Right. I believe in God because God keeps revealing God's self to people. Yeah. We keep finding God in various ways and through the incarnation. So. I think the theodicy problem, the theodicy project has for centuries basically been an argument against atheists and agnostics and that's yeah. just not a project I'm interested in.
0: Right. So, so, so I don't we, yeah. I don't
1: even go down that road. So I yeah. mean, we can talk about the second pelican, we can talk about okay, there are different forms of redemption. God is with it, God is co-suffering with it, God will redeem it in a further life. You know, there there can be pelican heaven and we can think about its life. Yeah, it dies, but then its body ends up feeding a passing fox who then can feed mm. the fox's children. So we can talk about different types of ecological redemption and then sort of resurrection yeah. and all of that. But the whole, the, the force of those arguments towards this makes God less probable is just not a project I'm interested in.
0: Right, and I don't necessarily by that argument in terms of a probability about God, what I find about that argument helpful is it it helps me focus on the instances of suffering that are truly relevant for my conception of God. And I would like my conception of God to be able to at least acknowledge those Examples yeah. and maybe I don't know that I will solve them, but yeah. I'm not ignoring it.
1: So, so here's here's a different sort of way to approach it: is how did we end up with those two pelican chick strategy? Yes. Did did God design this process so that that would be the survival strategy of the white pelicans? I don't think so. You don't think so? I think I think God allows evolution to take its own route, allows creatures to find their own ways of living in the world, even if they cause suffering and pain. And God mm. is at work redeeming them, drawing them into to more interdependent, you know, what we might term sort of quote unquote loving relationships with each other. I don't think that those instances exist because God wanted them to exist or designed them to mm. be that way. Yeah. So that, that would be a start. You know.
0: But before we get to your answer, which I'm very, which <laughs> i you know, or or your answer. your yeah. approach, yeah, I want to I want to spend a little more time motivating the problem here. Yeah. So, can you talk a bit about we've we've given some examples of egregious suffering, but it, it's also just the the basic mechanism is seems problematic from a theological standpoint of, of how this stuff works. You know, we, we know we've heard the phrase "nature red in tooth and claw." or Is that Tennyson or some some poet? What is the role, scientifically speaking, of this kind of predation and 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 uh, suffering and and blood and guts and you know, isn't is that the thing that makes different species that that led to us? I mean, how central is that to basically God's creative process through evolution?
1: Yeah, definitely, death is central. Definitely competition is central, how central is debated. Mm -hmm. So even Darwin didn't say natural selection is the only thing going. He said, I think it's one of a number of factors that we need to take into account. I think it's probably the most important one. Yeah. And by and large, over the last 150 years, that's been confirmed and reconfirmed. But now you've got things like the extended evolutionary synthesis, which is taking into account epigenetics, taking into account cultural transmission. So humans have culture, yeah. but so do animals. They mm-hmm. they can learn different things. So there's a great example in, in Britain. I live, I live in the UK now. They used to deliver milk to people in those little bottles at their door with a little cap that was made of Mm tinfoil and birds started learning how to get through these Mm. and it very quickly swept over the nation not only so for years and years and years they had done this and then suddenly uh all sorts of different species were learning to do it they were all learning to do it in different ways some bird decided like i'm gonna try that it figured it out and passed it along. So it wasn't a genetically passed on thing. It wasn't even passed on through families. It was passed horizontally cultural, across cultural species. Learning. Yeah. yeah. And so wow. then they had to stop those programs because yeah. too many bottles were being destroyed. And now they're actually reviving it. So now they've done it again, but we're a few generations away from the birds that used to do that. And they haven't refigured out the trick yet.
0: Interesting. So they didn't even pass that knowledge down genetically? No. They had a kind of a applied, learned knowledge that they could share with each other. Yeah. So that's in, that's mysterious. Yeah. Of. So that yeah.
1: that's going to have a big effect on on evolutionary sure. strategies as well, right? Yeah. Right. Um, there were some. Researchers, I think it was macaque monkeys that they were trying to study. And it was really hard to study them in their jungle environment. So they started putting sweet potatoes on the beach to lure the monkeys out so that they could watch their behavior. Watching, yeah. And one of the monkeys decided, realized that, that sandy potatoes didn't taste very good. So she went into the ocean and started washing them. And then everybody else started doing that. And then she realized, oh, if I like bite into it, then I can get salt on the inside. So then they all started doing that. But then they started spending time in the water and deciding that bathing and playing in the water was fun. And so eventually the researchers stopped putting out potatoes
0: because they're changing their behavior. But
1: but the monkeys kept going back to the ocean for bathing. Interesting. So now, several generations later, these monkeys have this new behavior of playing in the water that had nothing to do with what they were doing and so and then they're starting to you know eat seafood and you know th- things like that right. so you have yeah. you have these changes that that can occur that aren't just the the selfish gene mechanism which is what we think about
0: so that's where i was just going to go so sometimes we'll hear sound bites from people like richard dawkins of like the story of the earth and evolution is just one giant orgy of death and killing and it's just genes trying to reproduce themselves completely indifferent to the organisms that they're in, and that's the only mechanism, and it's all bloody, and it's all gross, and how could you believe in God? And what you're saying is two things. Number one, from a scientific perspective, that is not true. There's a lot more. There's cooperation. There's this kind of ingenuity of organisms that is not at the genetic level, and that's not even passed down genetically. Yeah. So with the the birds, for instance, they learned something that they did not even pass down genetically. We can't say it was the genes. It was something else. But number two, nonetheless, there is still a real problem here for Christians... Yeah. who want to believe in a good God.
1: Yeah. And it really comes down to the individual suffering. Yeah. And, you know, like that second pelican chick or or some, you know, a creature born with, with a, a chronic illness or that sort of thing. Yeah. And and those are very tough because even then you can flip the narrative a few ways. One, you can say, well, because the way genes work, there's there's just no other way except to have these mm-hmm. sorts of conditions. So exactly the same genetic mechanisms that allow for variation that mean that we're all different and therefore evolution progresses is the same mechanism that develops cancer, mm. you know, yeah. and, that, and that develops these, these genetic diseases. And so you can't have one without the other. And, you know, pain is another great example. We think, well, why not just make a world without pain? But people are born without the ability to feel pain. And
0: those people's lives are rough and they end very quickly.
1: Yeah, it's terrible because they don't realize that running headlong into a wall is bad.
0: Yeah, or will give them brain damage or something. Yeah, Yeah. they break their leg
1: and they just keep walking. Um, And actually, even uh, Hansen's disease, it's commonly known as leprosy. It's not a flesh-eating disease. All it does is it kills your pain nerves and Mm. you slowly destroy yourself.
0: Interesting. So
1: in one clinic... They're having the issue of patients were waking up with these wounds all over their hands. And it it turned out that what was happening was rats were coming and chewing on patients' fingers and their hands, and they didn't wake up because they didn't feel pain. So we need pain to live a good life. You wouldn't have a better life if you didn't feel pain. It's just when pain gets out of control or out of, you know, when it's no longer working in that protective function or when you Mm. get things like torture, Yeah. Where we can we can co-opt these mechanisms
0: for evil use. Note to New Testament scholars, though, there's something there for someone to write yeah. about Jesus and lepers, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then the suffering of God. Yeah.
1: So it's a bit tricky because leprosy was used as a catch-all ah, term. It wasn't, but the only, if yet. it was real leprosy, then Jesus' healing is restoring their ability to feel pain, feel pain. not taking it away.
0: Very interesting.
1: And that's I think that's fascinating. That is
0: very fascinating. Let's let's allow ourselves a minute of theological naivety and just ask, okay, but some people believe the universe was made 6,000 years ago, and if it was, then that's a whole lot less animal suffering, and maybe there wasn't even any suffering until people sinned, and since people's suffering can be redemptive, that would just be such a nice way out of this. God, you surely could have done that. Why didn't you do that? Like, how do you respond to that? I think a very understandable and heartfelt sort of a a wish.
1: That's interesting because typically if you, if you push that sort of a view very far, what people think God really wanted out of creation was us.
0: Humans. What God wants is
1: humans. Right. So can't we just fast forward to the humans? And Interesting. I don't think that that's how God views creation. I think God sees the whole process as a delight and as a joy. And I think God delighted in dinosaurs, delighted yeah. in trilobites, delighted in all these creatures who are now gone. And I mean, three billion years is a long time for us, but I don't think it was for God. So mm. if, I mean, imagine if we could have a world where you could put, pe- you know, put a couple human cells in a vat and kick out an adult human being with a, a lifetime of experience would that really be better than having the joy of having a baby and raising it oh. and i don't i don't think it would be i would prefer to see all the stages of growth to be in and through that and i think that's what god has done with creation god was definitely had a, has a has a particular plan for humans a particular role but wasn't in a hurry to, to only celebrate
0: so there's that, okay, I like that. That's a good pushback against that sort of uh, anthropocentrist thing that God's whole point is us. And, and it's in fact biblical. God God calls the creation good up until and before he creates Adam yeah. and Eve. But what about this idea of no death before the fall? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me that that, that belief has stuck around longer than maybe... Connected or surrounding beliefs, it has a kind of a theological and psychological power to it. Is it maybe because we sort of instinctively realize how much suffering there is in the world, and we don't want to confront that? I mean, do you agree? Do you think it has a a special power?
1: Yeah, I I think it I think it does. I mean, people find it harder to change their view on that than, say, a, a literal reading of Genesis, yeah. for example. Yeah. And I think that generally comes down to Paul. Paul mm-hmm. saying death entered through one man. Okay, you know so I there's think yeah. yeah. There, you know there's there's uh, Romans five, First Corinthians, I think fifteen. But in actually both those places. Paul's language about death is quite ambiguous. So he says things like, I die every day, brothers, I mean that, you know, yeah. for I am crucified with Christ and I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me, you know, yeah. so the death I died, you know, so if he's, if he's talking about death in those ways, he's not talking about the cessation of somatic activity and, biological you know, death. yeah, as he's we would, not yeah. talking about biological right. death, but people have taken death entering in the world as... Only biological death, that's the only option. Now, here's where I'm going to get into trouble. Okay. I think Paul probably did think that death entered the fall, that even Mm. biological death and spiritual death entered. Yeah. But because I have access to a whole bunch more scientific insight than Paul did, he was a smart guy, he just didn't have the resources that that we have.
0: Didn't live today. He didn't
1: live today. I feel justified in, in saying okay, that's how he talked about it in his culture with what he knew. And I think that if you had pushed him on whether the earth went around the sun or the sun around the earth, he would have quite happily said, of course, the sun moves around the earth. Right. And that's not a fault of inspiration. That's not nope. a fault of of any sort of thing, except that we really believe that God works through humans and through their capacities. And that's what's reflected there. So, And in the Old Testament, you really don't get this idea that that death is the great enemy. I mean, Mm. you have the curse laid in Genesis 3 only on the ground, but it's lifted in the Noah narrative. Nobody pays attention to, you know, for for the Lord God uh, said, I will no longer curse the earth. And after Mm. that, you never have this arar, this curse laid on the Adama on the ground again. And when you see death in the Old Testament, it's generally fairly either okay. You know, Abraham died and, you know, was gathered yeah. up. Or it's sometimes even celebrated. Like look at Psalm 104, the lions roar for praise, seeking their food from God. And, and then you have the divine dialogues in Job where, I mean, God is pointing out the most difficult, wild, uncontrollable, harmful pieces of creation and going like, hey, have you seen this? Like, this is pretty good work. I'm proud of this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, and, and, yeah. and, and so we, we sort of somehow we've taken this view that death is the complete enemy in the way that it's talked about in the New Testament in, you know, Revelation and uh, the last enemy to be destroyed shall be death. And and we've used that as a blanket statement rather than allowing the multiple voices of scripture mm. to, to speak to us.
0: But nonetheless, there is a problem here and, and your book is written to address the problem. How would you uh, most succinctly just describe that particular issue that you're, that you're trying to address?
1: It, it's the suffering of the individual. It's the suffering of that second pelican chick. It's the, 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 the number, the scale of creatures that don't find any flourishing. So a pair of sockeye salmon can lay 100,000 eggs, and of those, maybe three, maybe four will we'll develop to adulthood, and how how is God good to this individual in a way that, that their life can have a sense of redemption and the sense of scale. And then the other problem is that, like I said before, the two most powerful Christian options don't work.
0: If you listen to this show, you should know by now that I run a Patreon campaign. It's a way for you to support the work financially if you want to. It starts at 5 bucks a month. It includes two bonus episodes every month. And so I am here to introduce the first of those episodes for the month of April. And this is a conversation I had with a group of four individuals who meet together. I think sometimes there's more people there. But four of them were able to get on the mic with me. They meet together down in San Diego, California, and they discuss, amongst other things, you have permission, episodes. And when I found that they did that, I was like, that's really interesting. I'd be interested to know how you guys started doing that, what kind of conversations you've had. I imagine you might have some questions for me that could be clarifying, could be a fun conversation. So we had that conversation. And this episode ends up, I think maybe just because of the situation of the four of them kind of around a computer and a mic, and then me with my own mic. I ended up talking quite a bit, so you might think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, If you kind of want more of a window into how I'm thinking about a lot of these questions, this would be a good episode to listen to. If you're not that interested in what I think and mostly just care about the expert guests that I bring on, which is a very defensible position to be in... Then you might not like this one as much. Anyway, here is a clip from that conversation.
2: I'm almost through, but I reread the Bible with, with this one specific question in mind: of Is God relating in the context of time? Meaning, is is I was looking for open relationship or uh, open theology in Scripture, and the most extreme example I look at is Jesus praying before the crucifixion. I think his prayer is genuine. I think Jesus truly intended to interact in submission to the father, but he was genuinely looking for another way. And ultimately he submitted and thank you God for that. But hey. I, he wasn't just going through the motions. I, there, there has to be more that was happening. And the Bible's full of examples, you know, praying for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, is it was God just going through the motions because God knew, well, there's less, there's less than 10, so I'm, I'm safe, you know, hedging my bet, you know, 50, 45, 40, 30. Was that all just a game? Uh, I think God genuinely interacts and he considers his people. God invited Moses into secrets. That has that, to have meaning that's relational. I, I, it, it's almost as if, and I'm stretching a bit here, but I, I think God actually wants our perspective from time to time. He interacted with Moses that
0: way. Well, Rob, now you are coming beautifully close to process theology. <laughs> as I as I understand it, and uh here's here's how I think of it and I hope that I'm right, but basically the idea is that on a process view, um our actions matter. God what what God basically is always doing the, the the event, the process of what God is doing. God is in every instance, he's everywhere, and God is constantly basically presenting new routes, new options in every instant. And so on a classical view of Moses talking to God or or whatever, I mean obviously let, let's take Gethsemane because I think the further back you go in time in the in the Bible the, the more likely frankly it becomes that we're, we're dealing more with myth than historical account just because it's written a lot later and um, it's some of them are even written kind of like myth you know Adams Adam and Hebrew is human you know there, there's elements to but Jesus in the garden so we're talking this is they this is written as an, an event that occurred in in time and space with a a person that really existed. And so what a process view of of Christ in the garden would say is like, God is comprehending everything that is existing at once. And God includes Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus of Nazareth's prayer. As Jesus prays, may this cup pass. That changes Uh, the structure of all that is. And God then in the moment responds and presents things. And so this is a way of thinking why our input might matter to God. Uh, It's, it's that on the process view, the future is like not just open because humans have choices, but it's open because God might present ways that God wouldn't have presented earlier based on what now exists. And if humans have real will, that means we can bring things into being that are not predetermined. And so if God is reacting to all totality of the universe, then God's reaction includes the thing I just chose or prayed or did. And so in that sense, it's not that we are changing God's mind like a 180, but like uh, to quote the, the Big Lebowski, new shit has come to light. <laughs> nice and and it really has like there's a genuine addition of ourselves into our corner of God's story and so then that might change God's we, God might give us and uh, allure us to an option that was not there before we did this and if you think about your own life that's kind of what it looks like right in the way that we actually change. In addition to these two bonus episodes, patrons also get access to the You Have Permission Facebook group, which has been awesome recently. If this sounds interesting, go to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. And now we are back to my conversation with Bethany. So something that uh, we hear and we say to each other a lot is something like, well, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes when people say that, they mean we we live amongst sinful people. But other times they mean we live in a world where there's cancer. We live in a a fallen biological world in some sense. We live in a limited world where suffering happens and bad things happen, and, and that's part of the deal. One of the things you claim in your book that I found interesting is you don't think that creation is fallen, in a kind of a robust theological sense. So if someone were to say the, the created world is fallen, what does that mean? And, and why do you think that's not true? Okay.
1: So there are a couple different ways that people mean the fallenness of the world. And if what they mean is that humans are sinful and have effects on the world around them, I'm, I'm good with that. All in. Yeah. What I'm not okay with is either this sort of reformation belief that there was a cosmic fall, that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden suddenly lions became predatory
0: shock waves around the cosmos that now that Adam and Eve have sinned certain animals will be predators that yeah. weren't before yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and i
1: mean that, that one, i mean i think i think calvin said at one point that the the tilt of the axis in the, in the earth you know which caused the extreme seasons was also a result of the fall wow. you know so i mean they had like physical ramifications yeah. and i i just i i don't think that that's scientifically viable and i don't think that that makes sense of how human sin mm-hmm. affects the world then you have a few people who say well chronologically it's really problematic cuz humans just haven't been around long enough right. yeah. to to be causing this and so a few scholars have looked at other types of fallenness that are possible so uh, one really popular option held by say Gregory Boyd or or Michael Lloyd over in Oxford is that well, Satan was around for longer. actually c s. Lewis uses this as well. Oh. some some mysterious power could have corrupted the world before before humans were around to do it. And that seems like a, a good argument like okay, well, that would that would explain the uh, the violence and and all of that, except that biologically. That's what causes the beauty and the skill and the creation. So if the competition and the violence and predation are Satan's work, then so is the fleetness yeah. and agileness of the deer.
0: Then God is literally yeah. uh, partnering with Satan to create the variety of life on earth, including humans, which yeah. would yeah very problematic. Yeah. I mean, claim. the fact that yeah. we have
1: small guts and big brains means we've eaten a lot of meat in our past. Right. And uh, that that would be a result of Satan. Yeah. You know, so the very brains with which we, uh, you know, uh, recognize God would do that. The early Earth did have perfectly happy swapping of bacteria amongst bacteria in the ocean. You know, they swapped their DNA, they they multiplied, and it was great. But it was a very simple sort of existence. Mm-hmm. And so if you want the complexity, if you want complex interrelationship, if you want consciousness, then you have to have the ability to have pain. You have to have the ability yeah. uh, for or at least the possibility of of suffering. But this whole idea that that was that that the fall was cosmic is really seems to come into its own in the Reformation period. And then it disappears again as the design argument rises up, like you don't see in Paley. who wrote What's the, the
0: design argument?
1: The design argument is the idea that the complexity and the interrelationships of nature point to a designer. So William Paley wrote the famous book in 1802 called Natural Theology. Mm, And he says, if I'm walking across a heath and I find a watch...
0: Yeah, the watchmaker argument. Yeah.
1: It's complex. It's interrelated. Mm -hmm. You can see it's made for a purpose. When I look at a creature, I see the same complexity and purpose. So, but if you're doing that kind of thing, you can't also invoke a fall argument. Right, And so it's almost disappeared by the 19th century. You really don't have this idea that nature is deeply corrupted by a fall in theology in that period.
0: So then we want to say that nature is not sort of inherently evil, but actually God, for whatever reason, either because God chose to or because it's the only way to make a variety of life in a physical universe, how could we say we would know otherwise? this is, it's part of the means of creation. Yeah, And so we're not calling it fallen. Yeah. And you talk about creation, and, and by which you are not referring to a six day creation, but this very gradual.
1: Yeah, evolutionary creation. Yeah,
0: evolutionary creation. Mm-hmm. You call it a creation made in love. Yeah. What do you mean by that phrase? And what, is that what we see? Or it, would that be some other kind of creation?
1: So first, we need to look at what the nature of love is. So if okay. we think of a good God, a loving God creating, the world that we see seems only an odd thing because we think God is loving. So if you took Wesley Wildman's views that, you know, God's not in the caring business, then there's no problem really with the world. So it's really just the nature of love that makes us pause.
0: You could posit a deist God who doesn't care particularly how yeah. anything goes. He just... He likes to make universes, and so he sets the gravitational constant, and uh, some things will grow, and I don't really care what happens to them. So love is the operative thing. So love is the
1: operative thing. And what I found is when I was reading Theodicy, what most of them did was take the one, the fawn in the fire, Mm -hmm. and then try and enumerate all the reasons why this was actually a good thing. Yeah. You know, and I, I just wasn't interested in that. So I said, well, let me start from a different position. Let me ask... What does love look like? What is the nature of love and how would it create the world? Mm. And when I started looking into the philosophy and the theology of love, one of the things that kept coming up is that love is not coercive. Love Mm. is not controlling. Love doesn't relate to the object of love like an engineer does to a machine. I mean, we, have, we talk about helicopter parenting and that kind of thing. But if you can imagine a really extreme case where a parent absolutely controlled everything their child did so that they never got hurt, so that they always acted perfectly, at some point you would say, yeah, but there's something wrong there. That, that cannot be love because it's not giving freedom to the other. What, what the loving parent does is let the child take the risk and then is there to scoop them up to to you know kiss the owie better to you know sit with them as they cry and and then to to help them grow in that if we think of god creating in more that way then the evolutionary process makes a lot of sense it's god giving freedom to creatures to to develop to be themselves love gives the gift of space to the other to be something other yeah you know what i would argue we see god doing in creation is empowering creatures not controlling them what we see god doing in creation is suffering with them and redeeming them in various ways and one of the other things that i'm i'm trying to put forward is that god god's action in the world can be as simple as making meaning out of out of events so we sometimes think that the moment an event happens its meaning is fixed but that actually isn't the way it works. So, I mean, I can think of a junior high relationship that seemed like a great idea at the time. Yeah. And now I'm so glad <laughs> it didn't work out, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah, the meaning of a of a, histori- of a, you know, a thing that happens in time, that what that thing means is not decided at that moment. Exactly. In fact, uh, what it means and what it meant are sort of constantly evolving.
1: Yeah, and so we can think of people who, you know, died a terrible death you know, because of some unjust persecution. And now the meaning of their lives means something completely different than mm. it did at the moment they died. So if we think of God- well, Martin
0: Luther King's assassination means something very different than it meant the minute after it happened.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. And and so later events change the meaning of former events. Mm-hmm. So I, I think of God as sort of persuading creatures along developmental lines that will- ultimately redeem the meaning of past lives. Like we can think of the dinosaurs being killed by the big asteroid that, you know, hit the yeah. Yucatan Peninsula, terrible thing, mass climate change, mass extinction. Yeah. <laughs> and yet yeah. that helped the development of mammals. Right. And then we got Mozart and then we got Bach mm-hmm. and then we got Beethoven. Yeah. And there's something about the transcendence of their music. That's now a part of the story of the dinosaurs who died mm you know, so our stories are growing even long after we died. And I think that God is actively part of that meaning making
0: process. There's still a concern there, though, right? Because for instance, uh, and we're not going to move this to be about race in America, but Ta-Nehisi Coates makes an argument about the civil rights progress in America. And he says, look, it's great that, you know, these lynched, men were were a stone a cobblestone on the path to greater freedom, but it doesn't matter to them that they they don't get anything for having been that, and they didn't ask to be that and so but then that's the pelican, right? so that's the that's yeah. what we're still dealing with so
1: and that yeah, and so you need multiple lines of argument, so yeah. you know, um Chris Southgate and Michael Murray in particular have said there's not one answer to this. you have yes. to have a constellation of of approaches. None of which on their own are particularly strong. But altogether you can make a theology of creation that's mm. reasonably satisfying. Not maybe not a defense, maybe not something right. that will satisfy the atheist skeptic. Convince
0: anybody, right. But
1: but that allows me to see God at work in redemptive ways. So for that for that person, you know, or for that pelican, I think the strongest argument is is you know, one of actual resurrection and and yeah. new creation, where yes. God, you know, and a lot of people think of that new creation as sort of a compensation, mm-hmm. but I think that's thinking too small. Mm. I think redemption is far more than compensation. It is a new flourishing life in which the goods that will be are are far better than than what was missed out on here. Mm. Uh, so I, I've I've coined the term bio universalism. You know, where every yeah. every beetle, every dinosaur, every bacterium will will find their part in God's new creation
0: in our own life. Love does not always get its loving aims. Love does not always get what it wants. we might say. Sometimes love is frustrated, even though love's aims are good and true. Is that how you see God's loving aim in creation, or does God's loving aim get what God wants?
1: That is such a great question. I I do, I think you're right. I think that God takes risks in creation. And this is, you know, hugely unpopular, I'm sure.
0: Well, I hang out with quite a few process <laughs> theology people who would be very okay. comfortable with that idea. Good, good. Yeah. yeah.
1: Certainly because of the nature of love, certain things happen in the world that God does not want. I'm mm-hmm. very confident in, in saying that, that love has not been reflected in in the creation to, to the extent which I think God would want.
0: It, not perfectly, yes. Yeah.
1: But the creative work of love is redeeming. Hmm. So I think that God will build into a future that God wants all of the suffering, hmm. all of the evil that has happened in a way that that innovates and improvises in such a way that what God doesn't want becomes something that God can want with the participation of creatures.
0: And we're kind of back to the idea that the meaning of an event is not fixed at the time of the event. So,
1: yeah, John Saunders likes to use the example of jazz musicians. So if you think of a, yeah. of a master jazz musician playing with two uh, apprentices, you know, one of the apprentices makes a terrible mistake just completely throws in something that doesn't fit what's going on. Mm. And it's a horrific dissonance with everything else. What the master musician can do is wrap that around as the performance goes on so that that becomes a new theme. And Mm. actually, Tolkien plays on this in in the Silmarillion. Tolkien has this lovely... Narrative of creation, where the, you know the great god is basically singing creation mm. into being. It's it's a musical idea, and every all the angels are joining, and then you have this one who decides to do his own thing against the music of the rest, and adds this discord. But what but Eluvitar does, the the sort of great god, is is reincorporate that, rewrite the music of the cosmos to to make that. A new part and and to redeem it, and so I, I I think that that is how God works is as thomas merton says christ's work is to take senseless suffering and make it meaningful after all uh, and that yeah. that's my hope, like not that God is so powerful that God can control everything to be right from the beginning, but God is so creative and so persuasive and so persistent. That the greatest evil in the end will not be able to resist will will willingly partake in God's future.
0: And again, not we're not going to make this about race, but but Tanahasi Coates's uh, opposing view makes sense. He is very clear about his atheism. He's very clear that he doesn't share what we might call that eschatological future good, future new creation view that M. L. K. had. Yeah. And if you don't have that, then your solution or, I mean, it doesn't work, right? Sure. I mean, you, you, yeah. This is a Christian answer to animal suffering that includes new creation. Yeah.
1: And I think there can also be an abuse of that kind of argument that, oh, God will all work it out in the end. So we right. don't have to do anything now. Right. And I want to be very clear that that's not the view I'm right. taking, that we need to be acting now both for the good of other creatures and for you know, social justice issues. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 future eschatological hope that I have should be informing the way that I act right. now. Right. Because one of the problems that, that we face is just paralyzation from despair. Oh yeah. I look at the world and I think I can do nothing in that. I can't I can't solve these problems. So I'll just turn off the news, I'll go about my day and I'm just mm-hmm. gonna ignore it. And that would be my <laughs> solution because I just mm-hmm. can't handle all that's there. Yeah. But if I if I have this vision of hope, you know, and and you know, if, if uh, Tallahassee Coates yeah. says, you know, this is just pie in the sky, maybe it is. I don't know that for sure, but I'm going to let it—the hope of that—inform my ability to say, yeah, I can't change the whole thing, and the whole thing is actually in God's hands but I can partner with God to change this little bit. I can do this little thing. I can be kind to this person. I can refuse to hate that person. And I can give my money and my time into just little ways to change the world because I'm going to be part of that bigger vision.
0: and, And actually people who share that Christian future hope, can partner with people who don't in the here and now for even slightly different or overlapping reasons.
1: We can't, we can't do this as like, this is just a Christian project. We need everybody.
0: But the conversation we're having today is, is, is more of an in, in group discussion of, Hey, does our understanding of God make sense with the reality of animal suffering? Right. Can you talk about the idea of waste? Uh, something that you talk about in the book. And there really seems to be a lot of, from our perspective, a lot of waste in in nature. And, and, you know, there's all these species dead ends. Just even the genetic evidence for human beings is that there are at least 20 or more sort of proto-human species that just didn't make it. You know, Neanderthals kind of did. We have a little bit of Neanderthal. De- uh, Denisovans kind of did. We got a little bit of them. But there's like 18 others We don't have any of their DNA that didn't work. Maybe they could communicate with God. We don't know. From one perspective, that looks wasteful.
1: Yeah. So, and I think what you just said from one perspective, and and that's going to be the only way to approach a question posed in that way, Mm -hmm. is like, if you ask Holmes Rolston... He's going to say actually there's basically no waste at all hmm. i mean everything is recycled so he has this he has this yeah. sort of view well that's of,
0: obviously true right yeah and, and biologically true yeah
1: so he 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 draws from that and says ecologically everything is redeemed everything has been passed on every molecule in your body has been in hmm. countless other organisms right and their death is what has enabled your life we could see everything as in bloody competition and, and this completely destroys one's view of god Or we could see it as everything supporting each other. Mm. Uh, We could see it as, you know, the whole cosmos gathers together to support your life. Bertolt Brecht has the phrase that the motto of hell is eat or be eaten. The motto of heaven is eat and be eaten. If we think that the whole purpose of creation is to get to us, then you have a lot of waste. Yeah. If you have a view that God delights with and enjoys and accompanies every creature, whether its life is long or short or uh, painful or pleasurable, and and that God's love is expressed to each one, then that's a different view of, of waste. And and nothing in that sense is wasted.
0: Your answer or your approach to this problem is really coming down to two things that, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense. On the one hand, we've been talking about it. It is this future hope, this Christian hope of new creation, of resurrection. Paul says, without that kind of a view, we are to be pitied among all men. It is so central to Christianity. It is arguably the central thing that separates a Christian view of suffering from any other view is, well, the redemption of suffering in the new creation. And the second one is your understanding of God. And of course it ends up being about those things because mm-hmm. yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. answer these questions yeah. without yeah. that. But can you talk more about the kind of God that you believe in? I know that's a big question, but just tell us a bit more.
1: So I I think at bottom, if I was trying to say it as simply as I could, I'd say this, God is Christ-like. You know, Christ most fully shows us what, what God is like. And that, that includes both the, the, amazing ability that Jesus had to see people beyond the narratives that were applied to them. Mm, uh, yeah. The, you know, the inclusiveness of Christ, the love of Christ, the healing sense of him, but also his willingness to suffer. And then the, the narrative of the resurrection as as the point where, where the, the meaning of the cross goes from being an event of meaningless abuse of political power to a glorification right we call it good friday and that only happens because of of the sunday resurrection that is the god i believe in is one who walks with creatures who doesn't control them who's not averse to suffering because of the choice of love and yet who also has the power to redeem there is a sense in which this continually the dying of the self leads to the the glorification of others and and the life of others is is really an apt metaphor that the whole the the cross is sort of the central key interpretation point for what we see in earth history
0: but that but that eschaton, that new creation, that redemption—it it really is not is so necessary for this to work, yeah. Because you need that to make sense of this useless suffering. It is, you. It has to be wrapped up in Christ's suffering and to, resurrection to
1: some extent. But I, I, I'd push back that the other things have weight as well. So mm. God's co-suffering with creation really matters. Okay,
0: that's. I wanted to ask you about that. Okay, what, what do you mean when you say? God suffers with creation and, and and what evidence do we have that that, ha- I mean, that seems like okay. a, a, so, cr- a claim I love, but yeah, I don't really know how yeah. to make sense so, of it. So,
1: I mean, the, the, the evidence we have, so to speak, is the cross. That mm. this is this is the moment where God shows how God relates to the rest of creation. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Is, is uh, the sense of God taking on the, the pain of the injustice of how the world works. Mm. And I've had pushback that actually God suffering with me doesn't do anything. You know, if I go to the doctor oh. with a broken arm, that's no help to me if the doctor breaks, you know, her own arm, says, Oh, I'm, I'm going to suffer with you in every way. But what it does is it changes the view of God that we have. So did you watch the movie Shrek?
0: I am surely did, but it was a long okay. time ago. So yeah. there's this
1: there's this little guy named Lord Farquaad, who is yes. the lord of the realm, yeah. and he wants to rescue the Princess Fiona, but doesn't want to do it himself. Yeah, so, so he
0: hires the knight. He hires uh, yeah. the knights, right? Yeah. So
1: they're all gathered. He's up in a balcony high above them, and he says, you know, I'm going to send you out. This will be very dangerous. Some of you may die. But that is a risk I am willing to take, you know. <laughs> and if we yeah. don't have a God who suffers, you end up with that kind of mm. thing where God has a creation. God wants certain things that come out of it. And mm. God's, uh, our our suffering is a risk God's willing to take.
0: God would say, all of you are going to die. And that is an experience that I'm willing to have as well, if you wanted to rephrase it. Yeah.
1: So what it, so what the co-suffering argument does is it says, this is a God who didn't volunteer us against our will for a sort of thing, but a a God who knows exactly what it's like. And not only in the cross, but because of how God knows, God knows the full suffering that each one of us feels in our sort of first person perspective. Mm. And so there's actually no piece of that suffering. So I can only suffer as much as I can suffer. You can suffer as much as you can suffer.
0: Caterpillar you know, can't suffer very much, but a little caterpillar bit.
1: Caterpillar can't suffer very much, but I don't experience the caterpillar suffering. I can imagine what your suffering is and a little bit, but I don't really know it. Yeah. So actually, God is the one who feels all the suffering. Mm. So the the greatest sufferer is God, you know, and that that changes how we think about the risks that God has taken that have led to the sufferings mm. and harms we see.
0: Talk about love, you say that love is a latecomer in creation. I, I assume that what you mean by that is that in order for uh, true sort of free love, you have to have beings who are capable of not loving and or loving. And we don't—on on Earth, that's humans and maybe some other animals. I mean, maybe—do you think that mammal moms love their— Offspring. I mean, what do you what do you think yeah. is going okay. on with love? Right.
1: So that that's helpful. So because the Christian story is, has usually been framed around Adam and Eve being perfectly loving beings in the yeah. garden, yeah. we think of love as like the way creation was originally made, and then oh. it fell away. Okay, but Good. if you have an yeah. evolutionary process,
2: yeah. love
1: is a highly complex, mm-hmm. you know, phenomenon that is actually excessively rare. So I don't think that. Mother mammals love love their babies. Not, I think not in the way that I we think can they love, no. I think they have altruism. I think they have desires for the good, but they don't. They don't have the full complexity of of love. So one example I'll use is that they wouldn't have a self reflexive restraint mechanism. So. Mm. You know, if you love them,
0: let them go, kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. They they're not capable of that thought. Yeah,
1: they're not capable of that thought, and I think mm. that's where you start to get not just altruism, which is just giving giving up my own well being for somebody else's, but you have you have a complexity there of the desire for the good of the other combined with this desire for love uh, mm. for union. Yeah. with the other in in a way that's not but actually I'm I'm a really cynical and grumpy person deep down you know so I don't even think that love is really that prevalent amongst humans mm. I think what we have is we have a combination of the evolutionary desires some are selfish some are altruistic and these are like battling themselves out in it and that love appears as sort of a a work of god in the human soul that transforms those evolutionary desires, both the selfish and the altruistic, into something completely new. So I sometimes use the, the example of uh, bread or, or beer. Um, you don't find those things in nature. Mm. Right. There, there's no bread tree. There's no beer river. They're, they use natural ingredients, but then they sort of transform them. We transmute them in different ways into another thing that didn't exist before. And I think that's kind of what love is in the human soul is it's a transformation of these evolutionary desires that we have to participate with God to do.
0: So earlier we were we wanted to be careful about being too anthropocentric and saying, well, the whole purpose of creation is to get human beings, and so why couldn't God have just started? But do you think that the purpose of creation is to is in some sense to get sentient beings who can love God back?
1: I think that's one of the goals. One of the goals. But not all of them, so, yeah. yeah, so I'm happy to say, like humans have a particular place that that is different from the rest of creation, but not to the exclusion. like that's all God really wanted. so what are
0: some of the other goals
1: uh well to to delight in the lives of of other mm-hmm. creatures, i mean to to create something that was not God that would ultimately be drawn up into the life of the Trinity. And to allow the development of creatures that maybe God didn't even imagine, so i've been mm. so we've been talking about this sort of only way that that evolution was the only way to to have a process that creates life. And we can talk about you know so every once in a while a philosophical uh, objection will come, like one by Mats Wahlberg saying, "Well, no, I mean God could just create a pelican, like why not just create the the right. the, the the pelican but if i if I think about me, Bethany." Out of the unlimited possibilities, how would God choose to create me without an evolutionary process? Like, God would have chosen to give me an appendix and, like, a silly nose and, you know, because actually every part of my body tells a story of the entire history that got me here.
0: Even if God could snap his fingers and you would appear there, your organs, your DNA it wouldn't actually be you. God couldn't do that. I mean, it would look like you, but your DNA includes all this record, for instance, of all these missteps and misfires and successes and failures. And it would be in a sense like deceptive to just plop a Bethany right there with this historical record that was a fabrication. Yeah, It's like light coming from stars that are a billion light years away. That never existed because yeah, the yeah, universe yeah, isn't yeah. that old. Did and you I mean, like that? but even
1: even apart from that, I mean, I just don't think like if you were going to create a sentient creature from nothing, you just wouldn't make it the way a human is created. Mm-hmm. Like our bladders are in the wrong position. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's all sorts of things that that are just like if you were designing a human, this is not the way you would do it. And so the reason, so then you get into that philosophical question: How different could you make a body before it's not me anymore? Mm. Right. So I I actually think that there's a a reasonable philosophical argument that God couldn't just come up with the the plan, the blueprint of Bethany or of a pelican without without the evolutionary history that leads to it, because Mm. the pelican is so odd. I am so odd as a creature Mm. that, you know, and, and if God was thinking about all of the unlimited possibilities, yeah, I would be one of them. But then, how would God choose between me and all of the other possibilities that surround me that haven't actually been actualized? So there's there's a problem of, of choosing the particular, unless you went with the the sort of medieval idea that God created every possible being, you know. But then, but then you wouldn't you wouldn't have you know there, there's a, there's an issue there. It's even. hard to get yeah. your head around that. So so I think part of the goal of creation was was for God to see what would come up. Mm. Out of those unlimited possibilities,
0: that that notion is going to freak some people out. And so, imagine <laughs> imagine I'm a freaked out listener. Yeah. How do you how do you respond to my my freaked outness?
1: If this if this idea of God is is just like harmful to you, this doesn't help you. Don't don't worry about it. Sure, you know, leave it aside. Yeah, I don't know if I'm right. I'm not right. trying to sit here saying. I found all the answers. I'm saying like this is an interesting theological adventure to go yeah. on to try and put these things together. And and if if a different path works better for you, then just follow me with a thought experiment, but I I don't I don't want to convince your listeners of anything in particular. Yeah. You know, I think we theology is a model making endeavor. So, you know, if I'm if I'm making a model of something, I'm making it simpler than the reality is. And I'm making it for a particular use, Yeah. right? Like a map helps me get around, but a map the same size and scale as the real thing wouldn't be helpful. Wouldn't
0: be helpful at all. Right. So
1: this is this is a particular theological map yeah. I'm drawing for your listeners. And it's simplified in certain ways. It's not indicative of the true reality, which, yeah. you know, I don't think we can grasp. It's It's just an attempt to sort of map out how God relates to the world. And, and, uh, if, if they're feeling freaked out, just like, okay, let, you know, let it go and, and, uh, you know, use, use the map that's working for you.
0: So let's, <laughs> no, I sound like, like no, relativistic. <laughs> no, it's no, no, it makes sense. So before my last question, which is about other possible maps, let's just, let's summarize this map that you've drawn and let me, yeah. uh, I want to see how well I can do and which, parts I know are in there and then you can, you can do it better than me, but we've got non-coercion. Okay. That's a big part of it that, that coercion is not love and God is love. We've got the fact that the full meaning of an event is not determined at the time of that event. Related to that, we've got future new creation and that will be a major impact on the meaning of the things that are happening now. And then we've got the idea that even the suffering of animals, even the pelican egg, nourishes another animal. Yeah. And so, if we want to take the totality of that act of that uh, event, even at the time, it already becomes unclear that it's so bad. Uh, how much suffering for a pelican egg is worth energy for a fox? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the non-starvation, uh, of, the non-starvation fox. of the fox. Yeah. Um am I missing anything? Is what else what uh, well, else is? In there? I mean
1: I think I think you have things like, like God's accompanying um we talked about God's God's suffering. suffering right. We good. we also yeah. have things like God empowering creation, God being at yes. work in these different yeah. ways, God yeah. persuading. So I do think I do think God is at work drawing creatures towards ever more symbiotic and, and altruistic ways. So I think mm. God is God is active in the world doing that. And when it comes to humans, I think God does miracles as well, you know, mm. because there's an act of communication in a miracle that just wouldn't make sense for a non-human creature. Like it would avoid the pain, but it wouldn't reveal God to them mm. in the way that it might do with us. So I, yeah. I'm okay with miracles. But I, I think what you've done is is a, is a good summary that, that it's a, a creation made in love, and that requires freedom, that requires uh, a sense of self-development. And then just the, the delight that I think God God has with the diversity and the complexity and the beauty, even even the sort of glory of, of the hard parts of mm. creation.
0: And yours is not the only approach. It's not the only map, I assume. No. Nope. Uh, you know, you don't need to go into long explanations of other arguments, but if people are interested, like what's kind of an, another approach that you think is not quite as good, but has been fruitful for people? <laughs> so,
1: I mean, so I mentioned the sort of satanic fall approach yep. that I think Michael Lloyd has a new book coming out on that yep. that I haven't yet read, but I'm I'm looking forward to it. I read his doctoral dissertation. You have somebody like Nicola Hogard Cregan, who wrote a book on animal pain with Oxford University Press. And she sort of talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares, in Matthew, that the wheat and the tares are sort of combined in a way in the natural world that can't be divided. And mm. so, well, God intended the wheat, the tares are there, and it'll be sorted out in the end. You have Celia Dean Drummond, who talks about the the wisdom of creation, the Sophia of creation entails by its very nature, a sort of shadow Sophia. So if you think how, if you have a bright light, it necessarily casts shadows, mm. that there's yeah. something intrinsic in that.
0: There's no positivity without negativity kind yeah. of an approach. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And then you have sort of the views. So I take this idea that God takes a risk in creation, that God doesn't necessarily know the whole future. Yeah. Sort of the process open theist line. Yeah. But there are classical views that God is timeless and has a timeless perspective on everything, and so the, the, the somewhere
0: in that timeless perspective, you get the justice of yeah. All or so, the, like yeah. the
1: problem with my view is that I'm really reliant on God being creative enough to find some way to redeem even the worst of the yes, evils. Right. But from that perspective, it's already sorted.
0: We just can't tell. We,
1: we don't, we can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that sacrifices on, on the sense of what I've been saying about the meaning of event is, is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm, right. Um. It's not as it responsive a view, but it does gain in the sort of certainty of the eschatological outcome and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So these other views are self-coherent. They're good options. We just disagree on some of the basic assumptions that end up leading these other ways.
0: Can I throw out one thing to you that I often find myself thinking of? And I don't know if anyone's made this argument because I haven't read about it. It strikes me that there's something about finitude and finiteness. You know, you try to imagine an infinite world. You can't imagine it. It would be like one amoeba blowing up and you couldn't have, you couldn't have discrete persons. We couldn't talk. You couldn't eat, couldn't move through space. And it strikes me that maybe there's something about limits that will always include suffering. So the end of the meal, you know, if there's not enough food there, you know, whatever. Or if you ate ate too much and your stomach is finite or whatever, you have a hand, sometimes something's going to go and cut off a finger and that finite space is going to, you know. And so I, I wonder if there's just something about finitude that, there's no way around a certain amount of suffering. Yeah. Does that, does that, you buy that? Does it play so, into yeah, I mean, arguments? That,
1: that would be sort of a, a, a property consequence type argument. So if I want the property of having a body that can move and do all these things, then you have the consequence of other bodies can move into the same space right. forcefully. Yeah. You, I, I know the argument has been made that uh, finitude is a gift because it brings the end of evil. Right, people mm. like Hitler die, and it's right. a good thing that they do that they because die, yeah. the worst evil War's can only end. be perpetuated for a yep. human life yeah. or a civilization's Worse, life or yeah. that kind of thing. Right. So you have those kinds of arguments as well. I think I think they're helpful to a certain extent, but i i have a I have a different view that it's good for quite a different reason. In that, uh, have you ever noticed that when people talk about the new creation, reproduction is never a part of it? Mm. No, I don't know anybody who talks about babies in heaven as like a real
0: I have thing. a friend who talks about sex in heaven. Okay, made, yeah, way totally. Too much. Totally, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't talk about babies. He doesn't talk about new yeah. people, so, new souls, right? Yeah,
1: so I think like yeah. one of the values of finitude here is that that's what enables new life to exist. If we didn't die off, huh. we would very quickly overpopulate. I mean, there are great yeah, studies showing, beautiful. you know, if you have two flies that were for given a year— of, of unregulated growth, you'd have, you know, the whole planet would be covered, you know, a hundred miles high with just flies. Because
0: it's other organisms that control the fly population.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, you know, an aphids would make a line to the moon and back in six months. And that's the
0: months. argument against death, no death before the fall in yeah. our, in our actual exactly. world. Yeah, Yeah. We'd be swimming in ants. Yeah. You know, so, I mean,
1: I think, I think there's a goodness to death here that that's part of the process that, I don't think will be continued in the new creation. Mm. And so finitude at the moment is is a great gift. And you know what? It's just a personal gift as well. Like it's great to know that not everything relies on me or my ability. Yeah,
0: I mean we could go into Oprah book club territory and just say (laughs) knowing your limits is actually a great blessing.
1: And especially in this I I don't know how many of your listeners are academics, but there's always a sense that like You just can't read enough. You just can't right. know enough. Yeah, you yeah. just can't, you know. And so to say like actually that's a real limit. Like yeah, I yeah. even when it comes to social justice issues, I can't know enough to get everything right. So right. let to do the best we can do. Yeah. And that and that's actually a gift to be received that our idea that we should be limitlessly productive, we should be limitlessly yeah. efficient, we should be limitlessly having a great time. You know, yeah, is is just challenging. I,
0: I read in the introduction to someone's book, might have been Jonathan Lehman, uh, that Dallas Willard's one piece of advice to him, the the theologian and philosopher from USC, was ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, and hurry is our way of fighting against our finitude. Yeah, right?
1: exactly. Yeah. yeah, and then and then when death comes, death can be a friend, right? Mm. Uh, St. Francis, in his canticle, you know, Brother Moon, Sister Sun, talks about death as this friend who ushers us into God's presence and isn't something to be fought against. And so accepting our limitations, being able to say, you know, no, I'm not meant to be immortal, Mm. helps us then, in light of the future view of I will die, and that will be fine, helps me order my days today.
0: Mm. I'm glad I asked that question. (laughs) It served as like an epilogue. Yeah. Too bad your book's done. You could have uh, maybe figured. Oh, out. Oh, I don't
1: talk about <laughs> humans in my book. Very oh, that's right, right, yeah. right, right, right.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, <laughs> Bethany. Thank you. Big thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing my chat with Bethany. Uh, her book, "God, Evolution, and Animal Suffering," is in the show notes. Of course, the Patreon is in the show notes, Patreon.com/slashDanCoke. Two bonus episodes, exclusive Facebook group, and sometimes question writing for future guests. These episodes are intended to be resources. Please share them, even with people you might disagree with, friends, pastors, parents. Let me know how that goes. I want to hear from you in general. Who should I interview? What questions are you asking? You have permission. Podcast at Gmail.com and uh thank you guys so much i'm i love it the patreon is healthy it's growing the facebook group is fun uh moving sometimes i've got so many episodes coming up i'm so pumped about just thanks for being a part of the ride see you next week